Our exhorting brother this morning is Brother John Boma. The title of the exhortation will be, As Moses Lifted Up the Serpent. Brother John has asked me to do a reading out of the third chapter of John. John chapter 3, verses 1 to 21. It says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born again. How can a man be born when he is old, Nicodemus asked. Surely he cannot enter the second time into his mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said, said Jesus. And you do not understand these things? I tell you the truth. We speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen. But still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light, because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light, and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light, so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. At this point, I'll go ahead and turn it over to Brother John, as Moses lifted up the serpent. Thank you, Brother Randall, for the reading. Good morning to everyone. It's a pleasure to be able to address you this morning as brothers and sisters and friends of the truth. The topic I've chosen, as Brother Randall has said, is as Moses lifted up the serpent. We'll be reading from Genesis chapter 3, from Numbers chapter 21, and of course from the Gospel of John chapter 3. Some of the study books, references I've used with a book, The Law of Moses, Brother Robert Roberts, and, of course, The World's Redemption by Brother Thomas Williams. Because of the wonderful words in our reading this morning that we've read and the promise that's held out in them, we come together week by week to the table of the Lord. And it's here that we see, through the eye of faith, our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And contemplating his life, his mission, his sacrifice, we see 
don't we, brothers and sisters? We see through the eye of faith. We see Him as He hung on the tree, on the cross, and we meditate on the reason why He was there and what He achieved. We think of His nature, a man with all the frailties of the flesh, just as we have, and we think also of His great love of His heavenly Father and His love for His brethren. In considering this account, we see that on the visit, the visit of Nicodemus to him by night, Jesus had spoken to him these words, which help us understand that he, that is Jesus, very early in his life, had anticipated his agony on the cross, the death that he would have to endure, and its relationship to his own background, his, his human nature, this very purpose of His sacrifice, as we see recorded here in John 3. We ask first, who was Nicodemus? We know he was a more elderly man. We know that he was a member of the Sanhedrin. And he might have been among the leaders of this group. Jesus said to Nicodemus, Art thou a teacher of Israel? And so we might ask, is this a statement of his title? According to some authorities, his family is unknown, but some recognize him as Nicodemus Ben-Gurion, the brother of Josephus the historian. And it's understood that he was a man of enormous wealth. I thought this was interesting. One Jewish writer reports that he was so rich at that time that he could support... Try that again. He was so rich at that time that he could support the entire city of Jerusalem for 10 years. The entire city of Jerusalem for 10 years. Another one states that he was among the richest in Israel. But we also ask, what was this man's spiritual roots? Where was he coming from? And we find this from examining the Sanhedrin of Israel. We see they were the authority over all Jewish spiritual thinking. Nicodemus was, in some respects, one of these we've mentioned. And one of the most notorious doctrines was that their oral traditions were more valued than the Scriptures themselves. They believed that natural descent was critical, that Abraham's seed must have the blood of Abraham flowing through their veins, as we see in John 8 and Luke 3. They believed that they were justified by their words and that salvation depended on keeping the law. And by the way, this was the law that the Sanhedrin prescribed. So why did Nicodemus visit Jesus? We don't really know the answer to this at this point. But we do know that he came by night to Jesus under the cover of darkness for fear of persecution at this point in his life. Nicodemus must have been secretly curious about Christ as a teacher, calling him master or rabbi. There must have been something in his message that drew Nicodemus, making him want to find out more, developing a desire within him. The most important lesson for us is the same as what Nicodemus learned that day or that night. Excuse me. In these words, Jesus goes back first to the events in Numbers 21. But then he also he refers or alludes further back to the Garden of Eden, to Adam and to Eve and to the serpent 
which by its subtle reasoning introduced to Eve the idea of partaking of the forbidden fruit, which brings about the sin resulting in the condition of the whole Adamic race, including Christ himself. So to better appreciate the words spoken to Nicodemus here about the brass serpent, or the brazen serpent, which is a better translation, and it's lifting up, we also have to more clearly see Christ in them, and we too go back to the event itself in the wilderness of Sinai, and we review its importance, its influence, and the greater lifting up of him who was this greater sacrifice. Now in Numbers 21, if you'd like to turn over and follow, it tells us of the children of Israel who, after some time of trials and deliverance, through distress and blessing, disasters and miracles, they had become very discouraged because of the way, it says. And let's pause for a moment and consider each of us. Let's stop and think, how many times has this been our reaction to the hardness of the way? The things that we may be up against from time to time. But how many times have we reached out from help, for help from our Heavenly Father and found it? But we see the, the Israelites, the children of Israel, they murmured against God and then against Moses, accusing him of only bringing them out of Egypt to die in the wilderness. We see how unfair and how ungrateful human nature can be. And so God, in response to this ingratitude, sent these fiery serpents among the people, and many died from their stings. This might be what it looked like. I found a picture of this and some type of a cobra viper that lived in the area that God sent among them. Very deadly snake. We see how, from the account though, that some of them repented and they asked Moses to intercede for them, asking God to forgive them and to remove the snakes from, from them as Moses did. And so the Lord in His mercy and His forgiveness, He gave instruction at this point, which seemed strange at first, but Moses was told to make a serpent of brass, or brazen as we said, and to put it on a pole so that everyone that was bitten, when he looketh upon it, shall live. And the teaching of the object of this event is full of meaning when we relate this to the Garden of Eden and also when we look at the nature and the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ. We see that all mankind are victims of this serpent's sting. We recall the subtle reasoning that was used to influence Eve back in Genesis chapter 3. The, the, the subtle words of the serpent were, Ye shall not surely die, for God knoweth that in the day that thou eat thereof, your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. The serpents lie. And so Eve's response was to eat this fruit and then give some to her husband, and he also ate. And by this, they set into action the consequences of disobedience the transgression of God's law. They were cursed as well as all the earth and driven completely out of the beautiful garden which God had placed them in. 
So from this, brethren, we see the spirit of rebellion against God's ways was now implanted into the mind of mankind. Adam, by responding to Eve's presentation of the forbidden fruit, was stung by the same poison. And all of their offspring reflect the same corrupted thinking. This poison took root within their very nature. The penalty for disobedience was carried out in the sentence, Dying, thou shalt die. The constitution of sin and death brought about by Adam. And so the process of mortality began. The very good man and woman were now defiled in body and in mind, bringing to themselves and their offspring this sentence of death. The inclination to sin was now in the world. The carnal mind, the evil imaginations. And as Jeremiah 17, 9 says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. The human race then became enslaved to sin, as we know, the bondage of corruption, the universal rule of human thought and all of its productions. And it was against this background that Moses lifted up this serpent in the wilderness. And it was against this condition of mortal man that the great antitype was brought up on the cross to bring an end to forever. In this, then, we see Christ's words to Nicodemus were then given their meaning. Jesus was of the like nature with these for whom He was provided as a Savior. In all things, in all things, it behooved Him to be made likened to His brethren. Hebrews 2 and 17. He was born of a woman. It was human nature, human failure, which made it necessary for His obedience unto death, even the death of the cross, as we read in Philippians 2 and verse 8. The seed of the woman bruised in the heel partook of the same mortal nature and shared all the consequences of that nature with His fellow men. Isaiah 53 and 4 says, Surely He hath borne our grief and hath carried our sorrows. And so by sharing this nature, He possessed in Himself the poison of the serpent which brought him under the same condemnation that was common to all man. And although made of the same sin nature and carrying out all that, that he was born with, he never gave in to the flesh. He never gave in to sin. A real serpent could not have been used by Moses in the wilderness as the type that was prefigured here would have been destructive, not healing to the sin nature. It would have foreshadowed instead a Savior who by His own action had caused the very death itself. As the real nature could not be typified in the wilderness by a real serpent, it was represented by a brazen one, one made out of brass, the token of sinful flesh. And so the brass then represented the element of sin nature in the physical body of our Lord Jesus, nailed to the cross. 1 Peter 2 and 24. And so we have to wonder to ourselves, how many in the camp said, what a silly thing to do. Why do we have to look at this serpent? I'm going to get well anyway. This is upon ourselves. We'll get over this. I don't need any snake to cure me. Our grandfathers got over snake bites. We don't need that. We know better. 
How many might have said these words, but never lived to say anything again? And so it is with us if we're stung by the serpent and we say, we can cure this thing. We're strong. We can get over this. Just you wait and see. If we say this, then there is no life within us. We will surely die. But if our words are more like, I can only overcome the sting of death if I look to Jesus who was crushed and who had crushed this nasty snake himself. He alone was, has crushed this snake, but with His grace and mercy, we too can say, O death, where is thy sting? And O grave, where is thy victory? Our deliverance then comes from God and God alone through His Son, Jesus Christ. We cannot create our own servants, serpents, excuse me. We must rely on our Maker, on our Heavenly Father. I wanted to interject a little little bit of information here that might be interesting to some of you. You see these these signs like this that often often represent uh, those in the medical field. We see one with the two, and I came across this as well little bit of information, and I'm not sure how to pronounce it, but it says a cat, caduceus, I believe, a staff with two oppositely twined serpents and surmounted by two wings, the emblem of the U.S. Army Medical Corps. For veterinarian medicine, the double serpent was changed in 1972 to its present form with a single servant, serpent. Excuse me. It's also an insignia of a catechus meant mistakenly to symbolize a physician, the cadu- caduce. Caduceus, I believe, served as the symbol of Hermes and Mercury, the Greek and the Roman messenger gods. The Caduceus was the sign of a herald and hence a logical symbol for the messenger. However, because of a misconception, the Caduceus became the insignia of the U.S. Army Medical Corps. I thought that was interesting, but we also see it used in the modern medical world today. This is another picture of one that was depicted... And I didn't put this up here for you to read, but I'll leave it here. This is based on some Roman or Greek mythology. The Romans were find help in treating those who were ill with a specific pestilence that was sweeping the Roman Empire in B.C. The cult of Asclepius, The Libyan, I'm sure, a when this snake, the legend of the serpent in which the God himself was thought to abide, it said that it had slipped from the image of a God and followed the Romans through the streets and snuck into their ship. When the ship was at the mouth of the river, And the temple of the Latin Ascalaeopus came into being island where the serpent went ashore. So then they began to worship this as one of their gods, saying that this serpent began, uh, helped them develop a, so to speak, for 
for this uh, pestilence that was on the Roman Empire at that time. Well, we know, brothers and sisters, as we go back through some of these things, that there must have been some element uh, of this brazen serpent in the wilderness that was implied here. These things probably didn't just come to their mind as they made up these stories. They were probably aware of the actual account of the serpent in the wilderness. But I thought that was an interesting point to bring up. Now we're talking of medicine and we're talking of healing and physicians. But we see as we stated that the great physician is Christ himself, the ultimate sacrifice who brought about the healing of mankind, the condemnation of the flesh. He brought about the healing of that through the sacrifice of himself as a perfect sacrifice. And so our deliverance, as we said, comes from God through our Lord and Savior and we cannot create our own serpents. We must rely on our maker. And ever since the time of Moses and Nicodemus, men have been trying to concoct their own snakes. Only by God's chosen cure can we avoid the sting of eternal death. And so now we can more clearly understand some of the elements that are involved. The serpent, the brass, Christ as he hung on the cross. We see that body which inherited sin, Jesus who was made sin for us, sin in the flesh, represented or prefigured by the brazen serpent, condemned and offered for and put to death its carnal tendencies and is now taken out of the way. Paul spoke of the law of sin in his members. He battled this constantly and we see Christ as well. However, Christ being successful in his mortal Moral fight over sin in the flesh is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. He was without moral sin and became the greatest sacrifice, removing the sin in the flesh forever in himself and opening the way of salvation for all those who believe into him. Now what about ourselves? And as we are looking to Jesus as our Savior, To bring this into proper perspective, we have to remember the children of Israel murmuring in the wilderness and when bitten by these fiery serpents, they were instructed to look upon the brass serpent upon this pole. And by doing this, they would live. We have to think that this was more than just a quick haphazard glance, but more like a look of urgency, of consistency, and of true repentance on their part. After all, they were the ones that turned to Moses and said in verse 7, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against thee. Pray unto the Lord that he may take away these serpents from us. These dying people, being overrun with poisonous snakes, were ready to wholeheartedly comply with the instructions that were given. And so, with faith and obedience, with belief, And now with expectation, they turned their eyes to this representation on the pole. And when they saw the brass serpent, they lived. We, brethren of Adam's race, by our nature, alienated from our Heavenly Father, probably sometimes murmur against Him, and certainly all people who are under the law of sin and death have received this bite. But we... Look to Jesus, 
as the author and the finisher of our faith, realizing that there is salvation in no other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul says, I thank God through Jesus Christ. He also says in Romans 8, 1, There is therefore now no condemnation to them in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Putting away the condemnation of the flesh through the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus. And so by better understanding the nature of Christ, for His work to be effective for us, He had to be made in all points like unto His brethren. And that He might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. He had to Himself likewise take part of the same flesh and blood as the race of the people that He was to redeem in order to remove this curse. He had to come under the curse. He was not a substitute, as we've heard. He was not a substitute for us, but a representative of us, completely from birth to death. God's righteous law might be fulfilled in Him, and we might escape death by becoming one with Him in baptism. And so by understanding this, one can more fully comprehend Christ's further words to Nicodemus when he says in verse 16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. In breaking this down, we see that God so loved. The motivation of every true father is love. And it's no different with our own Heavenly Father. He's provided for our every need and He's taken the greatest care motivated by His love to open a way of salvation. He's provided for our greatest needs of all a cure for this sting of death. And so He gave His only begotten Son. He gave. God gave. Salvation comes first from God. It is a gift. He gave it. It's not something we can earn as Nicodemus thought. He gave it through His only begotten Son. Whosoever believeth in Him. We can't be born from above as Jesus told Nicodemus. Unless you believe as he told him, you must believe. And the verb form of faith is the word believe. Unless you are fully persuaded, as Paul brings out in Romans, we are justified by our faith, which motivates us to good works. This full persuasion. Whosoever believeth into him is a better translation. And as in the verses in Matthew say, we should enter into the kingdom prepared for you, from the foundation of the world. As the Diaglot says, that everyone believing into Him should not perish, but have life everlasting. And so here, brethren, we see a difference. A difference between knowledge and belief. 
We might know Christ, but not be in Him. Our belief must move us to action. First, our baptism, but then on to a life and service to our Lord and Master. In looking at Nicodemus, we see that he had it all, it seemed. But really, he had nothing. He had great knowledge, but he didn't believe in the fullest sense of the word that Jesus was trying to express to him. He did not put his trust in God's cure for sin. He relied on a pile of rules that had been accumulated over time. And it's critical for us to see this same point. We can understand every jot and every tittle of the Father's Word in our minds. We can memorize the doctrines that we profess and every passage in our statement of faith, perhaps. But if we do not truly believe, if we're not fully persuaded, if we don't fully entrust our life with our Lord and Master, if we don't lean on Him with all our heart, our soul, and our mind, then we are just like Nicodemus. We may find ourselves standing before Jesus with our minds filled with years of learning, but still not truly a child of the Father born from above. And so we see his is a strong lesson, this lesson to Nicodemus. You must never confuse knowledge with belief. Knowledge is a prerequisite to believing, but it never takes the place of it. Proverbs speaks of our typical looking to the brazen serpent when it says, Trust in the Lord. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not unto thine own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He shall direct your paths. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Refreshment to your bones. He says, have everlasting life. We see a rewarded, faithful disciple will live in our Father's kingdom. He will make up part of the new Jerusalem, the last great scene that the Apostle John saw in a vision on the Isle of Patmos before he he died. And so to summarize the lesson, to, uh, the lesson of Jesus to Nicodemus, we see some key elements that were first brought out. And first of all, that Jesus is the Son of God. He is not God. He's the Son of God. And that God loves us as our Father, and He has provided His only Son as a true cure for the sting of death. Jesus was made in all points like unto His brethren, even to His sin in the flesh, this brazen serpent. And the fourth element, to obtain that cure, we must believe into Jesus. And believing, being born, and becoming sons of God. Truly then we can be thankful, as the Apostle Paul says, I thank God for the Lord Jesus Christ. We can be thankful and rejoice with joy and gladness that God sending Jesus in the likeness of sinful flesh has by a sacrifice for sin condemned sin in the flesh. And as a reborn people, we've been brought into the new and the living way under the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus. We then in faith and obedience, with love and thanksgiving, 
we look to Jesus who was once suspended on the cross, even like this figure that Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. We know that Jesus at the right hand of God is exalted. He's our mediator, our friend, our savior, and soon to be king over all the earth. And as the promise to Abraham will soon be fulfilled in thee and in thy seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed. In closing, I'd like for us to read a couple of verses from Hebrews chapter 12. With reference to the previous chapter 11, those of the faithful who followed God, believing and leading their lives in such a way as to become faithful, It's referred to here when he says, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Consider the patience and the continuance of our Lord Jesus Christ as he ran his race. Then in verse 2, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Then look in verse 3. For consider. What does consider mean? To stop and to think and to ponder and to understand all that's involved. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be weary and faint in your minds. Now let's go over to chapter 13, verse 20 and 21. Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect in every good work, to do His will, working in you that which is pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Thank you.